You are listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. Hey guys, wanted to throw out a quick promotion to one of our friends and allies and helpers at here at oneofus.net. That's Nick Ties. He may have heard with Justin Zarian on some of the Breakfast Pub episodes, but he has his own website that's great, Unapologetic Geek Out or the Ugo podcast. And they're going to be at Anime Austin this year, held at the Holiday Inn in Midtown Austin, July 27th to 29th in the Vendor Hall. Just look for their big sign with their mascot, Isabella the Derpy Dragon. They're going to be giving, having contests to earn merch and prizes, playing games including Super Fight and Movie Pitch, as well as the panels are going to have familiar faces there, including Harris O'Malley doing Ask Dr. Nerd Love panel and a We Are Error reunion with Chris, Chris Herman and John Romo's unapologetic look back at JRP G's. So, by all means, get your tickets to Anime Austin. Check it out. Check out Unapologetic Geek Out. Everybody, it's your favorite time of the week. It's time for a new episode of Digital Noise, Woo! starring Chris and Aaron. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Thank you for joining me again, Aaron. It's my pleasure. Always fun to have you on here. Uh, we have a lot of different type of titles to talk about this week, including some of the best animated things ever made, and yeah. and some of the worst. Yeah, yeah, some of the not not best at all. Some old classic movies coming back to, to Blu-ray and uh, 4K, and some new stuff that you have never heard of. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I guarantee, because I hadn't, and then I'm like, wow, this is actually, some of it's actually pretty good. But... Before we get started, of course, a shout out to Oscar Blues Brewing Company. They are one of the sponsors of oneofus.net, and they have four brew pubs around the country, two in Colorado, one in Austin, and one in uh, North Carolina. Ooh. They're really, really tasty beers. We uh, particularly go through an awful lot of uh, their Pilsner and their uh, Dale's Pale Ale, which I really enjoy. I recently have gotten a flavor for their Old Chub Scotch Ale, which is super dangerous and has already gotten me in trouble <laughs> because it's like 8.5% alcohol, but it's a delicious, thick, syrupy. It's a delicious 8.5%. Uh, you know, one of those ones. Once you get in the mode of those, you just want to keep drinking them because they're yeah. tasty. But at first, they're a little off-putting because you're like, God damn, this is strong and thick. But, you know, hey, I, I like that sort of thing. But I do I do want to say, once again, if you go to one of their brew pubs, uh, and, and if it's the seasonal still available, because so good, try out the Fugly, which is their Kuzu Ugly Fruit uh, IPA, which is so delicious. I wish that we could get it in the can here. Unfortunately, they don't they don't can it here in Austin. Otherwise, I would pretty much just be getting that because I love it so much. I would like to try that. I'm a big fan of the fruit-based ales. I enjoy them. I, I like especially fruit-based IPAs. Yeah. Uh, that that Citradelic from New Belgium is the one that, that got me started. I was like, God damn, go. this is good. Uh, but yeah, please try them out. And also, if you happen to be drinking one, if you're at a brew pub or something, take a picture, post it with uh, at uh, Oscar Blues and at uh, uh, oneofus.net. Say like, hey, these guys turned me on to the beer because those guys like to hear that they're actually that the beer they're supplying us with is actually serving a good purpose. <laughs> uh, also, of course, thank you to you, you subscribers. Maybe you don't know about the subscription thing. I assume that's only because this is the first oneofus.net thing you've ever listened to because <laughs> we talk about it a lot because that is what keeps us going. It's the way we can keep putting out all the free content like digital noise as well as a lot of the subscriber shows that we do, of which there are many. And uh, on that note, coming up 
this week. Actually, I may, depending on what my schedule is, like Monday, I'm not sure if this is coming out first or this other thing, but we have a new Watch a Movie with Us commentary track featuring Ooh. Matt Frank and his gigantic, uh, his gigantic cast crew taking on the 90s Godzilla with Matthew Broderick. Oh my god. Yeah. When you started seeing the 90s Godzilla, I thought you might have been talking about the Heisei, the Heisei era, and I was Mm-mm. like, oh, those are really good. No, no. 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 Sorry. You full Broderick on them. I'm sure at some point he'll get around to going to those. <laughs> I, I've told him, like, like that particular one I was feeling really out of sorts, and I did not join him, plus he had a full crew, but I've told him when we do get around to doing um, the, the, the uh, 2000, uh, what was it, 2016, 15 Godzilla, that I definitely want in on that one, so... Yeah, obviously yeah. Godzilla is kind of his wheelhouse, his kaiju wheelhouse. But yeah, lots of extras like that. The Gathering, which is our party podcast, which is bi-weekly, although we are taking the next two weeks off for various special events going on around Austin, and also so my liver can get a break. <laughs> but please, consider being a subscriber. It is what keeps us going. And that's uh, with all that being said, let's uh, get into the reviews. And we're going to start off this. with our animation corner here, talking about... First off, The Awesomes, which was a three-season superhero television show created by Seth Meyers and Mike Shoemaker for Hulu. Uh, Lauren Michaels was an executive producer of this as well. When you look at the cast list for this thing, it's basically a... All of the all of the the cast from Saturday Night Live from the past five years who didn't go on to much huge or bigger things. Yeah, <laughs> as soon as I saw Seth Meyer was a creator, I started putting voices to faces. I'm mm-hmm. just like, oh, yes, I know every single person on this cast. Indeed, uh, the basic premise is it's a list. It, it, it's this guy whose whose uh, dad was the most awesome superhero who has ever lived. And he has decided that he is going to retire because he's like 90 years old, although he looks pretty good for 90. And he's going to go off into space where he can just be by himself and be happy uh, in his retirement. And he wants to pass off the the awesomes there of this universe's Avengers to, you know, the best person suited and his son who uh, pr- likes to call himself Proc because he's a professor and a yeah. doctor has a portmanteau, bad name, um, Terrible who has hasn't. Has a power, but he won't tell anyone about it. Well, and he's also super, super smart. Yeah, he's super smart. He's super nerdy, and he tends to be a bit stumble bunnyish. And what's funny is, I, the entire time I was watching the show, I kept thinking to that uh, line by one of the guys from Kids in the Hall and Sky High, where it's the super genius, and he's like, "Yes, we can do all this and build all these laser rays, but yet him, the one with the muscles." He gets the girl. <laughs> well, he he has a time stop thing that he can only he can make all time stop while he can move around and do whatever he wants for like ten seconds, but only like ten seconds at a time. Anything past that is super dangerous to his yeah, health. It, it could kill him. It kills him as he uses it. They flat out call that out. Right? Yeah. His dad's like, I don't want you using this power. I don't even want you telling other people about this power because it'd be dangerous to. It's so powerful. Other it could be dangerous to other people. But no, you can't use it. And even he starts to question along the way how much of that is that his dad just doesn't think much of him and doesn't even want him to be a superhero. And in fact, when his dad names the new head of the the uh, Awesomes, it's not him. It's a uh, Mr. Perfect or whatever he's called. Perfect <laughs> no, no, man, literally Mr. Perfect. Yeah. I think uh, who who immediately announces he has no interest in running the group, and just by default, it falls to Proc. And immediately, the rest of the Awesomes all quit, and he has to put together a new group of people featuring his. Uh, and by the way, Seth Meyers is is voicing Proc with uh, his best friend. Uh, Muscle Man, voiced by Ike Barinholtz, who basically is, yes, just a super strong guy. Uh, um, Frantic, who is a, like a Flash-type character, voiced by Taron Killam, who's, who uh, is kind of... 
He's he's like a uh, he's like a kid Flash redneck. Yeah, he's Louisiana redneck type, uh, yeah. not real bright, um, kind of crazy and really like, eager, really obnoxiously eagle, eager. There's a uh, gadget gal who was the orig- original member of the first lineup of the Awesomes, whose whole power she's got a bag full of cool, yeah. awesome so- gadgets that do stuff. Who is been de-aged back to like a young hot self except her personality is still like a old cranky lady i gotta say she was my favorite character oh yeah me too especially because like the de-aging is not a plot point it's literally they're walking by as she gets de-aged and they're just yeah. like hey want to join yeah exactly like, yeah sure <laughs> uh that's voiced by paula pell then you have impresario voiced by keenan thompson who is can conjure sort of thought forms almost like in a Green Lantern sort of way. Only problem is he's such a mama's boy. Every thought form he has takes on the personality of his overprotective mother. Uh, yeah. You weren't crazy about him? I was not crazy about that character. Uh, Sumo, voiced by Bobby Lee, who is a, a only 11-year-old kid, uh, but he can turn into a gigantic, incredible Hulk-like sumo wrestler character. Uh, Hotwire, voiced by Rashida Jones. I really love Rashida Jones, who can manipulate electricity and who has a big secret. <laughs> and then, of course, the, the concierge, uh, voiced by Emily Sp- uh, Spivey, who is initially just the secretary of the New Awesomes, who is helping them sort of do the the grunt work, but eventually gets full-on accepted as a member of the team with her own ability to be kind of a, a sub-leader, if you will. Um and, you know, I mean, it's a, about a group of misfits that eventually, despite public opinion being against them, sort of get it all together and make it work. That with the reoccurring villain of Malokio, voiced by Bill Hader. Yay, Bill Hader. Um, who is was originally the best friend of Proc's dad. And then he, with his study of superheroes, he ended up doing a thing that um to make the idea was they could make ordinary human super he injected himself with it and unfortunately although it did give him powers of massive incredible hypnotism um it also automatically turns you evil so yeah that becomes sort of a a a running thing throughout of it throughout all three seasons where even though he's not like in one of the seasons he's not even a villain he's actually joins the team he gets (laughs) de-eviled um and he is he is really fun as a villain. One of the the conceits is the only people immune to his power was, was his previous best friend, and now his son, his son, as he discovers. There's lots of other crazy superhero uh, characters that are in here, like uh, Rachel Dratch as Tomboy, who was the former arch enemy of Gadget Gal, who clearly mainly was because she became her enemy because she was actually super into yeah. her. Seaman, yeah. uh, <laughs> voiced by Andy Samberg, you can see Which, where of course th- it would be Andy Samberg. Yeah, you can see where those jokes are going to go really easy. Uh, Villantine by Jack McBrayer, uh, who tries to steal the world's roses to sell them up for upscale prices when there are no roses available on Valentine's Day. Really should aim higher, I'm thinking. Uh, There's the gay mafia, um, the beast, info bitch, kid meth. I mean, there's a lot of characters here. I'll say you said you weren't as impressed with this, and I get it, but it felt like it was one of those shows that Overwatching the whole series, it just started to grow on me to the point. And I, I can see that. Like, here's my problem with it: is that ultimately, it it didn't feel like anything new. Mm-hmm. Like this exact concept has been done many, many, many times. And the whole time I was watching it, I kept thinking back to like Mystery Men, which basically did almost the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. And so, like, which it, but which I did not care for for the record. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I interestingly, I think it. 
I acknowledge that it's there and that it's not bad. It's just that I kind of wish it had shown me something different. Mm-hmm. And because I had seen so many things like it, I ended up spending the entire time going, oh, well, then, then this is going to happen. Right. And, and then this. And so I was never able to get involved in it the way you did. I mean, it functions more with me successfully on the level of its humor, which even that is indeed hit and miss. But I felt like when it hits, it hits pretty well. And it's funny that it's not entirely sure on maturity level where it wants to hit. Because at points, it is quite risque. Yeah. But most of the time, it's actually pretty all ages, if you will. But just enough risque where it's not. And I'm like... I felt like it was like a really, in terms of humor, super toned down, uh, drawn together. Uh, that's exactly how I would have described it, yeah. <laughs> but, Which, I mean, you like, know. I, I'm with you. Like, I, I think it's funny. I think for other people it would work. Um, and honestly, I really enjoyed the performances, especially Bill Hader. Yeah, well, Bill Hader is Bill Hader. Bill Hader. What are you going to do? He's, he's, he's kicking our ass right now on and, HBO. And I so. even successfully divorced Seth Meyer, the character, from Seth Meyer... On his show that's on Nightly. Right. Which took me about half of the first season. <laughs> Stop hearing him. Expect him to be like, you know, I, this is a closer look. I, I always hear his show is good. I have not watched it, though, so I didn't have as much of a problem. There you go. Also, those were the Saturday Night Live years I was kind of t- started started to tune out. So I not even re- I don't really even <laughs> think of him as being like the, the news guy from Saturday Night Live. Yeah. Uh, that will always be Chevy Chase. Well, <laughs> you see, um, I'm Norm MacDonald. Yeah, well, I mean, I watched all those years of the Tina Fey, you know, I mean, come on, those, those are all great. But yeah. there's just a point, I'm like, I just don't have time to watch Saturday Night Live all the time anymore. Right so with you. Uh, Anyway, so this disc collection, which, I, like I said, I really, I personally found this a charming little series that if you're a superhero fan and animation fan is well worth owning, even if it's just the three seasons, uh, comes with a few extras, including uh, original promos and series trailer, Comic-Con trailers, uh, uh, this, the Comic-Con uh, 2014 um, uh, panel, uh Recaps, lots of promos, nothing in the way though of like really talking to like the creators, which is a shame because I would have liked to have heard more about sort of the formulation of all this. But regardless, I think this was w- well worth your time. Yeah, and it's a nice little complete series set for something that's not well worth your time. <laughs> okay, I get it. Right, this movie, this it's a, a single movie. This, thank God, the steam engines of Oz, and this is not based on one of the many, many, many L. Frank Baum Oz books. In fact, it is based on a comic book series, which is the only reason I watched this fucking thing in the first place. By Arcana, who apparently had gotten a license to not adapt the bomb stuff, but to create new stories. And that makes Oz. so much sense because there's there's. Anyways, I, I will talk about that later. Continue on with your plot summary. <laughs> well, this is a steampunk twist taking place many, many, many years after The Wizard of Oz. And it's kind of a dystopian Oz, which is split into a bunch of factions. It follows Victoria, voiced by, voiced by Julianne Ho, who is originally working as sort of a prisoner slash head mechanic for these giant steam engines that are that are making, you know, the the, the more formal land of Oz, the city, uh, the Emerald City, function as more of an industrialized. It, it took me fifteen twenty minutes to figure out that she was actually a prisoner. Yeah. Because well, because they didn't say she was until, like, the point where she suddenly goes back to her jail cell. And they're like, so she's like an emancipated prisoner. Like well, a, even then, like, like she just kind of comes and goes as she wants. It's like 
she's not a prisoner, but she right. just lives in jail. Right. Where, where a lot, you know, a lot of these people who were formerly big parts of the, the Emerald City before a new tyrant took over also live in these jail cells where it appears they're treated relatively well, but they're still prisoners yeah. without as much freedom as she has. And when it announces that the tyrant in question is the Tin Man, I was like, okay, I'm out. <laughs> like, I was like, okay, so the Tin Man from the original one <coughs> apparently got his, uh, got his, uh, heart hurt too bad by the loss of a loved one, and so he decided to remove his heart that the the, the uh, um, what you call it the wizard originally gave him in the original movie, and functioned to we said without that I can make this land a utopia, and without a heart, his idea of a utopia is this like magic free industrialized society. Well, it's, yeah, it's, it's industrialization. So I have to tell you his backstory mm-hmm. and the way they told it was the only part of this movie I actually really enjoyed. Really? Like, I, I started off in the beginning with reverse Stockholm Syndrome, where I was like, no, it, you know, like, the animation's bad, but you know what? They're trying. They're doing interesting things, I guess. <laughs> I, I guess. The animation's, but yeah, as yeah. you said, the animation's not just bad. It's it's embarrassing. Well, and bad. then it kept going, and then it got, then I saw the lion designs, and they look like 80s, like, hair metal lions. And then it was like, oh my god! I mean, it's CG. But, it's CG animation that feels like it came out. It, it would have been top of the line ten years before the original reboot. Well, it's like <laughs> so. The flashback is this really odd little comic book look to it, which it makes sense that this is adapted from a comic book. Mm. That was the only part that the narrative actually got me involved. Everything else is terrible, and as I got further into it, I realized I had this image that. They had this script idea for an action-packed, darker-tinged animated film and then blew their budget on the cast. Mm-hmm. Which isn't even that impressive of a like, cast, There's really. a, a few... Ron Perlman's in it. I guess there's no, like, A-list, but there's people I recognize. I mean, there are people I, I recognize. Um, uh, yeah, Ron Perlman, who has a very small role in it. But, like, so... You can see that they wanted to do this, mm-hmm. and then the animation is so shit that they just never corrected the script. So, like, the movie becomes a big, huge action film with Matrix-esque kung fu scenes towards the end of the film. Like, you, and You know what it made me think of? Have you ever watched, like, a film, like, a, like a, a big studio animation film that will have, like... Scenes that they that that were deleted and that were never finished animation oh, you, that were you, in the that animatics. Like, yeah, where it's not just the hand drawn, but it was like okay, they've done that first stage where it's animated, but obviously these are just the placeholders to put yeah. on top of it the proper animation. That's what this entire movie looks absolutely like. correct. Uh, it's like someone made a big budget steampunk Oz film. And then forgot just to, forgot to do the last twelve renders. Yeah, exactly <laughs> the big budget part of it. Uh, and there's, you know, it brings back some other characters like the wizard and the wizard's brother. Apparently, I guess that's a thing. Uh, maybe that's introduced in the bomb books as well. I have no maybe. idea. I, but I um, and the cowardly lion now has like a whole crew of like lion people that are kind <laughs> of cannibalistic and and uh, uh, are are like gray. Good guys, but weirdly, there's also just regular lions running around. Okay. I was curious about that too. Yeah. There's just normal lions who are part of their pack. Too. Yeah, I'm like, it's not like a different happen? group. It's no, no. Did they have to hit the Terrigen mists or what? And it's only those like three or four lions who are have voice parts are the half lion, half human, wear lion people, 
every other line is just a normal line. It's it's. I'll just say this is not good. There's even I, I think especially if you're a big Oz fan, you should skip this. I mean, maybe the I've not looked at the original comic book. I, maybe it's much better. I think there's enough here that. If it was a longer comic book series, I could see this storyline possibly being interesting. Yeah. But as it is compressed into a movie, it's so kitty and kind of annoyingly simple and badly animated and not even good voice acted and just like I, – I can't think of anything to recommend. Well, and even coming from the parent side of things – yeah, everything was so kiddy, but this movie gets so violent towards the end. Yeah. It's just, it's a 30 minute fight. Yeah. And that's, sorry, that would be cool. That's not really kid appropriate which, either. Which would be cool if it was like, you know, animated well, but yeah. it's, that's where you, it really kicks in yeah. how little money or you, attention you was spent on that. the jets that just hover. Yeah. Yeah. It like, looks like Birdemic for God's yeah. sakes. All right. Sorry. The cats are fighting. Stop fighting. All right. Uh, all right. So let's move on to something that's the <coughs> exact opposite of that oh in my terms God, yes. of quality, which is they have finally, and I can't believe it took this long, finally Nintendo has put out a Blu-ray Nintendo. complete set. Uh, I'm sorry? Nintendo. Did I say Nintendo? You did Nickelodeon. Nickelodeon. Sorry. Uh, Nickelodeon has put out, finally on Blu-ray, the complete Avatar The Last Airbender on Blu-ray, which people Ooh. have been shouting for for a long time now. And sure enough, it is indeed... A solid set with more than enough bonus features to make fans happy. Now, I mean, I know you're a big fan of this series. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I would go so far as to call this one of the modern classics of animation. And uh, I, I consider – of animated television. And I consider Cora uh, to be right in there with I, this. I'm fully with you, 100%. Like, this is one of the shows that I am waiting with bated breath for my son to be old enough to show him. Oh, not old enough for Avatar yet? How old <laughs> is he? How old is two? Oh, no, not old enough for Avatar. <laughs> so maybe another three years? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. it's old. It's one of those things. A real little kid can totally enjoy the hell out of this. Well, but but a full-grown adult, also, there's more than enough mature themes and interesting and uh, like great storytelling here to keep you in as well. So it, it ages. It does the Harry Potter thing. Yes, it like, does. The first season is so very kiddy. It's a kid show. Yeah. And then as they start weaving the plots into the second and especially into the third season... As all those plots are paying off, it does get a lot more enthralling for the adults and also a little bit more intense for the young kids, which is why my son's probably a few years away. Sure. <laughs> Do you want to describe the plot? Sure. Uh, basically, basically. Uh, it's it's not quite anime is how I've always described it, where right. it's an American studio trying to emulate anime. Uh, and basically, it's, it's a combination of Chinese and Japanese uh, cultural myths and one of the core components is humanity is split up into the tribes, uh, each tribe corresponding to an element which they can control. Yeah. And there's a single person who's the avatar who controls all of the elements and basically... And also can, is the one guy who can control air. True. Is, is, well, if, yeah, when the show starts up. But yeah, so everyone controls the elements, the avatar controls them all, and the show takes place 100 years after the avatar disappeared. And nobody knows where he is. In the first episode, two of the characters of the Water Tribe find him in this block of glacier ice and free him accidentally. Yeah. And, and if they dug a little bit further, they would have found Steve Rogers. Too, yeah. But, you know. <laughs> and basically, he is seeing the state of the world and going, oh, my God, this is a horrible place because one of the tribes have taken over the rest of the world. And it's about them trying to educate him on the powers of the different tribes 
as well as building them up to a point that he can take on the Fire Kingdom and save the world. Woo woo. Yeah, and, and Aang, the the Avatar, has to because he was just a kid. He was never he was fully trained. So 11. yeah, he's never fully trained. He's still way more powerful than almost anybody on the planet. But he's still to really become the Avatar, which generally happens in epileptic spurts. <laughs> um, he has to fully train himself in all of the other disciplines because he's yeah. really good at airbending automa- already. But he needs to fully learn fire, water, yep. and they split the show up into. Each season is represented by the element that he's trying to learn. Yeah. And it, it's one of those shows that really takes you by surprise. Because it be, when it begins, it really is just, yay, it's a goofy kid who has magic powers and is riding penguins. And all the animals are cute combinations of two animals. Right. But then as you start getting into the series, it gets really intense. And yeah. the kung fu is amazing. I would say, like, even, like, one of the things I liked about Korra is it kept that maturity level going up. Agreed. Where it was like, we're not going back to the beginning of being super kitty. We're like, okay, people are watching this already. Teenagers are older at this point. Let's keep going with a more mature storyline that got much more into the sort of steampunk stuff that pops up in here. But that one is, like, much more into the sort of that industrialization of this world. Well, it's the benefit of the of the world that they are in, that they can do that because each avatar is a lifetime apart. Mm. They can jump 50 years ahead and tell the stories from that point of view. I, I wish that Korra had gotten more support. I did. So that there could have been more shows because I want to see the next avatar. It is actually getting one of those shows that like, although a lot of people were like skipped out of it initially, which I expect some of that had to do with toxic fandom. Um, It's being, I see all the time now people going, oh, I finally watched Korra. It's so brilliant. Saying things like, why didn't anybody tell me? I was like, we were screaming it from the fucking rafters yeah. how good it was. It basically, with Avatar and with Avatar The Last Airbender and Korra, go watch it. Yeah. If you got kids, show it to them. And super- if you like anything even remotely fantasy or animated, track this down. It's an amazing show. And be patient, like we said, because that first season, it starts off very kiddie-oriented. It's still pretty. It's very sort of like when Miyazaki is doing his most kiddie type stuff at yeah. first. But it really... I mean, even that, after a few episodes, really grabs you. And, and there is a sequence in the last episode between... Uh, it's a fight between two side characters. Mm-hmm. One of them is in the first episode of the show and the other one comes in later on that is the single most beautiful piece of animated anything I've seen. Nice. All right, so there uh, you guys have already seen it. it's like yeah 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 but other than being upgraded to Blu-ray what else do I get if I go and like you know double dip and go ahead and get this whole thing on Blu-ray? Well, there is a uh, behind-the-scenes kung fu featurette with a martial arts expert, Sifu Kisu, talking about all the martial arts styles that are in the show. There is a four-minute the making of Avatar from real life to animation with the creators uh, acting out some moments from the show. <laughs> There's behind-the-scenes the voices of Avatar for four and a half minutes, quick discussion of the characters and the voice acting process, the, act, the Ask the Creators featurette answering with the creators answering a few fan questions, uh, an original uncut animatic from episode 15, Bato of the Water Tribe. There's uh, a variety of audio commentaries on here behind the scenes with the Avatar cast and crew, the Avatar pilot episode with audio commentary from the creators. There's a look inside the sound studios. There's a look inside the Korean animation studios. Um, uh, let's see what else we got here. Interview with, this is the weird one, interview with the creators sitting down with M. Night Shyamalan to discuss the show. And- oh. Oh, and Shyamalan's film, which I'd be like, did none of you guys tell you that that's considered to be one of the worst movies ever yeah. made? By the way, 
anyone out there who's seen that movie and is like, yeah, no, just forget the movie ever yeah. existed. Yeah, forget it ever the, existed. The character doesn't even have Which its right I, name. I have no idea why they would want to even acknowledge its existence yeah. here. That one just baffles me. Uh, there's uh, more... Uh, this is weird. Avatar's super deformed shorts, which are described as childlike characterizations in the world of Avatar, tell a trio of mini-stories. Bending battle, swamp skiing, throwdown, and school time shipping. Uh, there's an animated graphic novel, which which has music but no dialogue, with text-based dialogue on it. Uh, and like, like I said, tons of commentaries. And look at all the women who are in Avatar. Um, pencil test animations, and then uh, the panel of the voice cast at San Diego Comic Con. So this is really one where they put together the set. A, a solid collection of extra features and a really nice upgrade to Blu-ray for anyone who's a fan of the show. This is, I feel, like a very worthy uh, like yeah. reason to go, even if you owned these on DVD, to go ahead and, and pick this up. So hear that? Everybody out there, go buy it, because if we all go buy this and all go buy Cora. We might get more. <laughs> that is very true. I would love to see. <laughs> I that. want more Avatar. Damn I would it. love to see the next. Gen- Actually, I'd kind of. It's weird. As much as I'd love to see the next generation. I'd love to see one that takes place like with the first Avatar. Uh, you know what? I, I'm actually with you on that. Yeah. Go back to the past because with how they changed everything in Korra. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I'm intrigued to see what comes next, but I like that that ends on such an open note. Right. I want to see like. Where did all this begin? Hundreds of years ago. Yeah, like way. So none of these characters will be appearing in it. You know, like from these, like they're not going to do one of those. Oh, they were old. They could have. No, I want one with like the birth of the powers. Where did all this come from, and how did they organize them into martial arts styles and go with a very sort of samurai film film type of feel to it? You know, and we keep talking about the martial arts of the Avatar Mm -hmm. series. In all seriousness, for those geeks out there who like kung fu, it is. On par. Yeah. Or on point. They nail it every time. All the forms are distinctive. It's beautiful. Agreed. All right. So uh, I just, I got this kind of late, so I didn't have time to pass it on to you. I wish you had gotten a chance to see this because I thought this movie, Love, Simon, Love, comma, Simon, uh, which just came out in theaters this year, was really fucking charming. Um, despite claims that John Hughes would be proud, and maybe he would, but I still wouldn't quite put this on a level of quality of a John Hughes film, which still, to me, is like... I mean, I'm old, so those movies, to me, were, like, groundbreaking. Which isn't to say there isn't anything groundbreaking about this film, uh, uh, directed uh, by Greg Berlanti, who's probably which, best known for doing all the CW uh, Okay, that is shows. him. I've been sitting here looking, going, yeah. Greg Berlanti? But uh, this is, honestly, the best and most... The best way I can imagine to explain to a kid who maybe doesn't really understand the whole gay thing, like, to put themselves in the shoes of what it would be like to be in high school, to be gay, and be afraid to come out, and what's that all about? Because this, following a a lead character whose name is no big surprise, Simon, played by Nick Robinson, uh, is a closeted uh, gay teenage boy going to high school in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, His... Very loving uh, parents, uh, played by Josh Dumal and uh, and Jennifer Garner, um, has a little sister who likes to cook and always does a terrible job, but they all support her anyway. <laughs> uh, and he's got a whole group of friends uh, that he's very close with, one of which appears to be uh, very, very uh, in love with her, played by Catherine Langford from uh, uh, 13 Things. Uh, I hate about you? No, 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 no. What was it? Does she go on 30? No, no, no. The one, uh, uh, oh, 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 13, 13 Reasons Why. 
the suicide thing. Yeah, she's the know. dead girl in there, who I just found out. Like, I was just reading Entertainment Weekly, and you know, there's a beginning part in the beginning where they do the quotes of the week from thing. Yeah. Uh, and like, apparently, she starts her ghost starts talking in the second one. And he's like, yeah, "So well, you talk now?" <laughs> I can't believe I know this. Yeah, it's because now she's telling him what to go investigate, and so yeah, she's personified in it. Yeah, I'm glad I didn't move on to the second season. Yeah. Anyway, although I thought she was good in it, for the record, but um. So he, we see in the beginning that he has seen, uh, there was a online confession of a closeted gay student at their high school who just wants to be known by blue. And he, feeling a sense of identification, starts emailing with him back and forth because there's an email address. Uh, but also, you know, he makes up a new email address so it's not connected to him. So they're sort of comparing stories and he realizes he's starting to fall in love with this person. He doesn't even know who they are, what they look like with so many shared experiences. And so he's basically kind of going through the list of people he knows and wondering which one of them it is, you know, thinking it's probably someone I already know. And he gets in, things get more complicated when somebody who he's not really friends with, who's one of the, um, like a, a, a theater guy, uh, played by Logan Miller, who's kind of one of those, he's one of those drama kids who's so obnoxious, you just want to smack him, who's always <laughs> like, you know what, you know the, the ones. Yes, I was a yes, drama kid, I and did. I knew those drama kids, and we were like, calm. He's the guy who, when they, he and his friends go to do karaoke, only does show tunes. Like that type of guy. Um, finds out. It's such a randomly specific thing. <laughs> he finds out, and, uh, that it's him. And blackmails him because he wants to get with one of his best friends. It's blackmails him. You have to, I'm going to tell everyone unless you help me get with this girl who's your friend who doesn't like him at all because no one does. Wait, the theater kid blackmails him? Theater kid blackmails oh, Simon. Yeah. Okay. I thought you meant Simon blackmailed the theater kid. I was like, well, that's a shitty thing for a main character to do. It is a shitty. Well, it's a <laughs> shitty thing for that character yeah. who is definitely a, a, a main character in the show. But it's also the the, the uh, kid who plays Wally West on The Flash plays one of the team, uh, the, the other students here. There's a lot of familiar people. Alexander Ship. Uh, George, uh, Jorge Ledenborg Jr., Kanye Lonsdale, Miles Helzer, uh, Tony Hale plays the actually quite likable but nerdy principal of the school. He's like trying almost too hard to be friends with, and with all Aww. the kids, you know. But there's a cuteness to this and a real sense of heart that I admit by the end, I was really, I was all welled up. I was like kind of crying a little bit going like, this is a super sweet romantic story that really has a, like a lot of like very real feeling high school lessons to learn and a sort of very smart awareness uh, that even for me, I'm always like, like, well, and today I know it's still complicated in some places, but if in general, all the people around you are gay friendly, then why are you so afraid to come out? Well, this movie yeah. makes it very clear how nonetheless complicated that is. Um, and I, I honestly think it's one of those things like teenagers, both gay and straight should probably watch this thing. It's cute. It's kind of fluffy. But it's got some real lessons to teach, and it has a and you have a really good time along the way watching Sounds it. Sounds good. I'll have to check it out. Although, I, I have to comment. Isn't it funny how Jennifer Garner has become the mom? She's the mom these movies, which, now. Having gotten used to her as an action star and alias, and well, but that she movies. tried doing the, the feature film thing with that, and it totally bombed. She's so. kingdom, but you're right, nothing else. Yeah. So I and think she just kind of so weird now. Yeah, like, you killed people. <laughs> 
I would totally, for the record, if they decided they were going to go back and do a sequel years later uh, of Alias with her oh, in shit. it. Yeah, I'm down. I, yeah, I mean, let's just forget the last season ever happened and just move forward. Um, there's a few del- about eight minutes of deleted scenes on here. There's a thing where they talk about this is based on original novel, adapting it from there. There's a lot of little EPKs, and then a cute thing where they had a contest where people were uh, allowed to submit their own short films about their first love, uh, and it shows the winner of that. Yeah, I know. I was like, oh, that's so sweet. And they're like all I like, have to see this. They're all like, you know, high school and college kids making these, these little short films. So I was like, oh, that's super sweet. Yeah, I thought this was kind of adorable. Um, all right, so let's move on to, uh, two re-releases that, yes, I'm afraid are nothing but pure double dips with nothing extra to offer except for the first time ever digital versions of the movies and then slipcovers if you care. But that is a big deal for a lot of people who are trying to translate their whole collection yeah. onto digital, which I, I know I'm certainly trying to put as much of it on digital as I can because physical media. It takes up space. Yeah. It takes up space and only lasts so long too. I mean, no matter how long, I remember when they were originally CDs first came out, they were like, they're immortal. They are decided. Decidedly not. Yeah, no, uh, yeah, certainly not. <laughs> yeah. Um, but those two movies are Coming to America and Trading Places, two films both by uh, legendary director John Landis. Who Which won- I did not know. Isn't that funny? Like that the guy who did the American LA. Werewolf in London also did these two fantastic uh, and two of the best of which there's only really maybe five to choose from Eddie Murphy uh, live action yeah. um, comedies. These are both really fun, and one could even argue that Coming to America is a sequel to Trading Places. Yes, you can. Although, I will have to say, it's interesting watching these. Trading Places actually went down in mm-hmm. my mind. I, I liked it less this time than I did in the past. Coming to America, I liked it significantly more. Now, that may have been Black Panther syndrome, because yeah. I spent the entire movie going like, oh my god, if Black Panther were made here, this is what it would look like. I was like, this Which, is basically the... the, the, the it's Wakanda. The 90s version, or, or the, whenever this came out, the, the version of Wakanda. 87. Yeah. I only know that because I looked it up once I figured out it was John Landis, and Trading Places came out the same year as The Twilight Zone, mm-hmm. which I was like, ew. I mean, to put it very shortly on both, Trading Places is where Eddie Murphy is a poor, like, you know, homeless guy, and two rich guys see him and say, hey, uh, let's do a bet that we could make this one guy who's sort of our heir apparent, played by Dan Aykroyd, we could make him penniless and make uh, Eddie Murphy super rich. And, you know, they would trade places well, as it titularly were. versus nurture depends yeah. how they're doing And it. would they revert <coughs> to, would they revert to the, you know, like. Who they were. To, would, they, would they, would he stay, would Dan Aykroyd stay principled and, and whole or would he become feral? Would Eddie Murphy still stay like, you know, keep his street instincts or would he become like a decent human being by a rich person's terms? Um and it's a really funny movie, and it's funny. The, the heart of the film, or heart of gold, as you might say, is uh, Jamie Lee Curtis, who plays a hooker who takes in Dan Aykroyd's character. Oh, my God. So, I I am of an age where I was aware of Jamie Lee Curtis as a sex symbol, but I still missed it. Yeah. I, I wasn't around for that, but I, I caught the tail ends of it of people being into her. I get it now. I get it. Oh yeah, this had one of the most famous topless scenes of the era, where where she takes her shirt off, and you're just like, "Those are the most perfect pair of breasts I have ever seen yes, in my life." And, and I feel, I felt dirty, but still, yeah, she's gorgeous. Yeah, but, but she's like, it's just such a lovable, lovable character in here. There's so many great connections between between all the people here. The chemistry is great. It's nonstop funny. Um, 
I, I think this is a modern, like not even modern anymore, but an old comedy classic. Right. If you haven't I'll seen it, it to you. You I agree. The only thing that I didn't like this time was there's a bit with a gorilla, and <laughs> it's John Landis, man. That's yeah, his thing. Yeah, I, I don't know why, but man, that did not play for me at all this time. Yeah, he but, um, he he's got that whole thing where like way back when he made Schlock, his first movie, he said. Uh, there's no such thing as a bad movie that features a man in a gorilla yeah, suit, which is which is patently not true. Not true. <laughs> it's like, have you seen Robot Monster? Um, but no, I like the movie as a classic. It's great. Dan Aykroyd when he hits rock bottom. Yeah. Uh, and the Santa and, suit, and stealing Santa suit, salmon, chewing <laughs> salmon with beard hair in it is one of the most iconic. Oh my god, you hit rock bottom images I have ever seen. Oh uh, yeah, you you are you are totally not wrong. Uh, and then coming to America, you're just Eddie Murphy as a prince from a ridiculous, well, basically Wakanda, um, like a super rich, but still very African in in design and culture. I I like to view this as what happened to T'Challa like two years before the events of Civil War. Well, because even to the point where it's clear he's kind of a badass too. I mean, he's fully trained by, by his number one servant, but sort of best friend played by Arsenio Hall. He's trained by him regularly in fighting styles. And he's a total badass. Samuel L. Jackson. Yeah. At one point, Samuel Jackson comes in playing basically villain version of Samuel Jackson. I can't wait for him to say motherfucker. Oh no, man. Cause he comes in there and he says a line that sounds a lot like that opening line right before the credits in Pulp Fiction that, that Amanda uh, Plummer says, you know, and you motherfuckers move and I'll execute every last one of you. It's except for motherfuckers. It's basically the same line. (laughs) And I laughed at that, but uh, yeah, so he hit the idea is his father, James Earl Jones says, look, We've always done it this way. You're having a princess selected for you. We have arranged marriages. And he's like, but father, I want to believe in love. And uh, after a very awkward and not very modern sequence where he's making said princess, who has been trained her whole life to obey him, hop on wooden foot and bark like a dog. It's interesting. I didn't mind that scene. Uh It's so absurd. It's hard to be upset. It's so absurd, but it's also him going. This isn't right. He's like, are you kidding me? Don't. Don't be this way. Please have an opinion. So tell me, what music do you like? Whatever you like. <laughs> Which I still quote all the time. I say that. Whatever you I like. Could, I could just see him just being like, just tell me what you like. Um, and so he decides, he convinces his father, oh, I'm going, I want to go to a, take a vacation to America. He's like, oh, his dad's like, oh, you want to sow some oats before you get married? Okay, you get like this long, this many days, and you can do that, but then you have to come home and marry this girl. So he's like, well, that's not what my plan is. So he goes with Arsenio Hall and is like, we're giving off away all our stuff, albeit unintentionally at first, and going to live in the poorest, crappiest state part of the, <laughs> the area, and I'm going to get a job at a fast food restaurant, which is hysterically called McDowell's. So I have a theory, and uh-huh. please don't tell me I'm wrong. Okay. Okay. That the original script for this had him being just a manager at a McDonald's, <laughs> but they couldn't get the rights to McDonald's, so they just changed it and made it a part of the plot. I, I don't know. think so, but I don't know. Uh, I want that to be what happened. That, that, that was my headcanon for the movie, and that's so much better than anything else that could get, be real. Jan, John Amos is Cleo McDowell, who's opened this, <laughs> constantly being harassed by lawyers from McDonald's, who because this place is a straight-up rip-off of McDonald's well, they even in have every them, like, way. With McDonald's manual at one It's like, yes, our, our, our burgers are... Uh, uh, Lettuce, tomato, onions, pickles. Well, uh, we don't use sesame seeds on the bun. But see, so it's totally different because yeah. no sesame seeds on the bun. Um, <laughs> and 
He's trying to appeal to him. Maybe he's a nice guy, but he's sort of like really into at this point, making sure that his daughter, Sherry Headley, ends up with a rich guy because she he doesn't want her to struggle like yeah. he did growing up, who is played by an almost unrecognizable Eric LaSalle. I'm watching this with my wife and she's like, that's the guy from ER? Yeah. I mean, because he's got this giant <laughs> the cherry girl wig that's just dripping <laughs> which, with like product the which whole time. may be my favorite background running gag yeah. is the Soul Glow ads so that keep good. running everywhere. Yeah. Because it has no bearing on anything, but no. it's just there. There's a scene where his around. whole family, who own the company, they've all got the heavy soul glow hair. They're all like, sitting on a couch, and they all sit up, and there's giant wet, wet spots, spots behind each of their heads on the couch. <laughs> um, but anyway, so the, of course, said daughter uh, is the one that Eddie Murphy decides. He, she's the one I'm going to fall in love with, because uh, she is a woman who, who, a woman who is, she's into politics, she's into making things better for her fellow man, she's super smart, and graduated from college, and she's really independent. And she doesn't need a man, and I want her to think that, like, I am a man who will be her equal, not a man who owns her. Which is, you know, pretty forward-thinking for both Eddie Murphy and this period of time in Hollywood films. Um, And it is kind of a sweet film. I will say, I just think in general, this is just not as funny. I don't think this is anywhere near as funny as everybody else does. It's good. Huh. I never dislike this movie, but I don't think it's the same sort of laugh out loud funny as his movies like uh, Beverly Hills Cop, which I still think is his funniest movie. Okay. Uh, or Trading Places is, I, I, I always say I think 48 Hours is his best film, period. That that film is a goddamn masterpiece, if you ask me, like no matter which way you look I've at it. I've never seen it. It's so good. I mean, just like forget about Eddie Murphy being Eddie Murphy. I mean, because he has very funny parts in it, sure. but it's it's a... It's a definitive buddy cop action film, but from the darker side of it. You know what I mean? Okay. It's amazing. Anyway, I wish they would re-release that. Um, yeah, but this is still solid. Once again, though, it's just all the same bonus features from the previous release. Nice to get a digital copy uh, of them for sure, because both these movies I'm more than happy to own. But, you know, hey, what are you going to do? Yeah, they're worthwhile. You know, It's what? nice to watch a classic film and not be offended by it the entire way through. Very true. <laughs> Uh, another film that's getting a re-release here, but now on to 4K, we're getting more and more of these things coming out, is Escape Plan. Now, hold on. I know. You're like, wait, Escape Plan? That movie with that was like such big, touted team-up first ever between Sylvester Stallone and Arnold Schwarzenegger on screen together that everyone was like, oh my God, it's going to be the biggest thing ever. And then because they were both old and nobody, you know, yeah. the studio just didn't care as much. Small action. It was just, it was a relatively small action film and everyone, including us, when I originally reviewed this, were deeply underwhelmed. Oh, same here. I hated this when I first saw it. I was like, God, what the fuck was that? Yeah. That was not at all what I was expecting. Well, going into this with lowered expectations, I actually had a really good time watching good. it. Same here. Good. I'm the, glad to hear that. The only thing that got to me was that through the first 45 minutes, I feel that uh, Sylvester, not Sylvester Stallone, Arnold, um, Arnold Schwarzenegger acts in cameos. Mm-hmm. Like, every scene he shows up, it feels like a cameo in one of the movies made over the last 20 years. Yeah. And it's not until like an hour in that you start to see them actually start to act off of each other. And granted, there's there's kind of plot reasons for that that you get into later on. But it's still, it, it's super awkward for that first 45 minutes for well, me. Stallone plays Ray Breslin, who, who in and of himself is a really interesting idea for a character. He is runs a L.A.-based security firm, and his whole idea is that he tests, he is the best escape artist that there is from prison, but never because he was in prison for legal reasons. Like, he, like... 
his whole thing is his company, they pay for him to be inserted without anyone at the prison knowing into their prison so he can figure out how to escape from them and then report back to them. Here's how I did it. Here's all the things that are wrong with your system. And he's paid an enormous amount of money to do it. In fact, when we first meet him, we don't even know that's what's happening. He's escaping from a prison in a super elaborate plan. And then we find out when he gets out. Oh, yeah. Guess what? Like, I'm not, you yeah, guys, I'm not a prisoner. Yeah, I'm not actually a prisoner. Where he works with, uh, Vincent D'Onofrio is sort of, sort of his, his, um, uh, it, friend and friend and business partner. I, uh, I get the sense that he's the actual manager of the business. Yeah, no, totally. Stallone is the, the, the agent, the one who does that. Yeah, he's the, the guy who does everything. Yeah. D'Onofrio is the one who gets the deals. And then Amy Ryan playing as well, a senior member of that. And, and you know, everyone who works with him is sort of lifelong friends of his. So it's 50 Cent in the only role I've ever been able to accept 50 okay, Cent in. I was like, he's actually kind of good. Yeah, he it's plays the techie. spot. The only two times yeah. I've ever seen 50 Cent where I'm like, okay, cool. He plays the magical hacker, <laughs> you know, because he's supposed to all have to have one. But so, like, a uh, a person comes in and says, look, we have this, basically the raft from Marvel Comics, like the super secret yeah. facility for the worst of the worst. <laughs> we're just, when we're burying the worst of the worst, never to see daylight again with no chance of escape. And we want to pay you much more than your usual dime to come in and try and break out of it as per your usual thing. Problem is the moment they go through the, the grab where he's grabbed off the streets of New Orleans, they remove a tracker that was part of the deal that's in and his neck, and uh, basically put him in this under wherever it is oh, mystery prison with that looks like where they keep Magneto in the X Men. <laughs> Don't forget murdering a random guy too. Which yeah, is kind of actually becomes a plot thing. Yeah, uh, and he meets up with uh, the the evil warden played by the Caviezel, Jim Caviezel. I always enjoy it when Jesus pops up in small movies. <laughs> um, and then, of course, you've got Vinnie Jones, a sadistic guard. Um, but the main thing is that when he's in there, he meets um, Arnold Schwarzenegger as Emil Rottmeier, who is another prison prisoner who, right off the bat, is trying to put extra effort into connecting with Sylvester yeah. Stallone's character. And you're like... If everyone here is so – if you're clearly a boss in this prison, why are you going out of your way to be friends with me? Which is one of the the central conceit mysteries here. I think on the whole, despite the fact this never reaches the levels – I mean, this feels like an 80s action film well, in a lot of Here's what it is. Like, I think we all – when Schwarzenegger went, I'm going to be in movies again. Yeah. We all expected Predator and Commando. And the thing is, is the be-all and all, he's an older guy. And so his movies have been smaller, yeah. more low-scale action films. Agreed. And I think that once we've all gotten past that disconnect, I'm starting to really enjoy these small, low-budget action films he's yeah. doing. Like, a, you know, expectations tampened. Yeah. And going, this, it's still, okay, this is still silly. It's got a lot of stuff you're like, yeah, that would never happen. No. Uh, and some flat-out dumb as shit moments. But, but it, it's, it's, a, it's a nice, co- it's a... It is an escape film, like a, or not an escape film, it's a con man film almost. Almost. Where, yeah. where you see them like building out the plan, then carrying out the plan. I, now, I mean, granted, I think that it gets a little bogged down into 80s action movie towards the end, where I'm like, guys, if this were a real prison break, you would all be caught by now. Yeah. But 
even that it's okay. Yeah, it's not I mean, bad. It's just like, oh no, that's once you're that's a flaw. I'm acknowledging okay the silliness, uh, inherent silliness of this, it's fine. And I, yeah. I genuinely went, that's fun. I could see watching this again. Yeah. Um, and I think even Stallone and Schwarzenegger, when they are uh, like exchanging dialogue, they which is a decent amount in the yeah. film, they make pretty good chemistry together. I, once you get past that point when they're feeling each other out, I'm totally with you. Um, and, and honestly, there's a couple of twists in here. Kind of actually surprised me. Okay. Now, granted, I it was about a couple of things that wasn't really that important. I didn't yeah. care so much about it, but it was still like, oh. I felt like most of the twists were okay. where it fell a little short for me. It was like, well, that's super dumb. Yeah. <laughs> and really, like, how would that even work? <laughs> but there's uh, the reason this is even getting a re-release, because God knows this wasn't incredibly well-received when it came out, is because the sequel, directed dvd <laughs> Escape, uh, Escape uh, Plan Hades, is about to come out. Uh, but with Sylvester Stallone, no Schwarzenegger, mind you. Oh, I and did then not know they've that. already shot Escape Plan 3. Also with Stallone, that's already that's coming out like six months later. So it's interesting. The fact that it doesn't include Schwarzenegger in it makes me actually more interested in that hmm. then. Because my problem was like, why would those two guys ever end up in that situation again? Right. But if it's just Stallone, I'm like, okay. Yeah, because I that's his that. whole job. That's your job. Yeah. Cool. I kind of want to see that now. You're probably going to vet uh, whoever he's <laughs> doing it with more carefully in the future, I would hope. Uh, there's audio commentary by the director and co-writer. There's a 22-minute make, making of. Uh, there is a 21-minute piece that takes a look at real-life prisons uh, and people who tried to escape from them. There's Clash of the Titans for 15 minutes, which looks at the relationship between Arnie and Sly on set. And there's about eight minutes of deleted scenes. But, you know, outside of the 4K, there's nothing really, like, no. break the bank great here. But, hey, I, I I think it, this is a movie that's worth revisiting, even if you didn't like it the first time. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it also made me realize that Lionsgate puts out a lot of stuff that I tend to enjoy. Mm -hmm. Because on the trailers that were running before that, I either enjoyed or want to watch every single movie that popped up. Okay. Right on. All right. Next up is The Great Silence. <laughs> Boy, this is a really, really dark spaghetti western. Yeah. <laughs> Holy shit. I mean, it is uh, directed and co-written by Sergio Corbucci, who uh, was probably best known for uh, his Terrence Hill and Bud Spencer action comedy spaghetti westerns, which, by the way, are super, super fun. And Django, the original Django, which is obviously super violent, is more in common with this one than those other ones, which we reviewed recently. Um, obviously... And more obviously at the time, this is more of a political allegory uh, inspired by the deaths of Che Guevara and Malcolm X than it is a straight-up Western. But it's interesting for many reasons. One, it's one of the only spaghetti Westerns that takes place in the snow. Which, it was really well shot. I, I it thought was? it was a pretty movie. Uh, I think, it, I'm sorry, I was going to yeah, say, it's very clear, too, Tarantino loves this movie. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, because this is... This is, this is the chief inspiration for um, the... His newest one that I'm blanking on. Yeah, yeah. The, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah we all Ten know. Angry Cowboy. Yeah, yeah. We all know what it is. But that, yeah. Whatever that one is. It yeah. is, right? Because it's clearly, definitely. it's like, oh, this is the plot of that. Well, to some extent. Um, so it takes place another weird thing. The main character is a mute gunslinger who, uh, when we eventually start to see a story, we realize because a bunch of bounty hunters basically cut his throat to keep, after killing his family, to yeah, keep him from like talking. eight-year-old kid. Yeah. And so now his whole thing is, well, I go and I legally 
murder bounty hunters that have gone bad. That's my whole deal. When bounty hunters are going above and beyond what they're allowed to do the, but from the point yeah. of the law, I, I murder them first opportunity, always letting them shoot first. And what, what the director does here, too, he gives him a very odd weapon. Mm-hmm. In these kinds of movies, we so often see rifles or uh, revolvers, but he has like a Luger. Yeah, and it's, and it's in a wooden case. Yeah, it's weird it's to see a really German gun. First, <laughs> but then the the wooden case serves as a attachable stock. Yeah. So it, the director did this with Django, with him car, car, uh, carting around that coffin the whole movie, and then it's a minigun. Yeah. He loves to give his heroes these really unique weapons, and it's uh, it's good. It works. I, I completely agree. Uh, but he ends up uh, trying to help a bunch of the people who are literally just like only stealing food because they've been politically forced out of their homes and have no choice. They're going to die this whole community unless they do that. And he decides essentially to help them out. And, um, the main villain is Klaus Kinski is sort of the main bounty hunter, which you know, is going to be, he's going to be a good villain. Yeah. I mean, he's a villain in real life. Such a weirdo and such a delightful bad guy. Um, this is a movie that is very beautifully shot. It has a lot of like really decent for spaghetti western performances in here, uh, including the I believe first performance by Vanetta McGee, who went on to do become much more famous in black exploitation films like Hammer, Melinda, Blackula, Shaft in Africa, Detroit Nine Thousand. Um, but yeah, her her first big appearance in a film and has the most shockingly dark ending of okay. any western I have I, ever seen. I was one, I was sitting back and waiting to see how you address that cuz cuz I don't want to talk about it cuz it is the end of the movie, but it went from a movie I'm intrigued with and I've been enjoying to holy fuck I don't know if I will ever be able to sit down and watch that movie again because of how just unrelentingly bleak it gets. Oh man, you're not kidding. It's just like you've that, what? That's how you earn it. Which is that moment you realize, Oh God, this really was a political allegory. Yeah. yeah. More it's like, than oh, it was a Western. Th- this meant something that I just, I'm 40 years too late to get. Well, the good news for you is if that really disappoints you to that point, there's an originally fully shot alternative ending. In fact, two, uh, one of which is the super incredibly happy version where everything happens in a more traditional way. You expect Western style where, where everyone good lives and everyone bad dies. So if you want to like stop it at a certain point of the film and switch to the alternate <laughs> ending, you can do that. But you also will see that you're like, yeah, that didn't work at all. Well, what I'm really, Here's the thing that weirds me out, though, is that at the end of the movie, after the very bleak ending, it references a true real-life event that this movie is based on that happens in the 1800s. And I wanted to be like, why do we need to know about this, about something that happened a couple hundred years ago? Yeah. Why? I I would get it if it was about something that was going on to then yeah and i guess that's what you're telling me it was based on che guevara yeah so maybe if i had gotten that yeah che guevara malcolm x the assassination of like of uh political Political figures that that had figures uh socialist leanings you know um and this is definitely i mean if there's ever a socialist film this is it yeah (laughs) for sure just in its way where they don't say it out loud it's just is what the you know it's just saying tyranny is bred by capitalism, which in this movie all the bad guys are being paid to do the bidding of yeah, the rich all, guy in town. You they're know, all bounty hunters or businessmen. Yeah, and the law is like there's nothing I can do about it. It's all straight and legal. You know, yeah. 
Um, so this is Arrow. So, of course, it's got a lot of extra features, including those alternate endings there. Also, uh, there's an interview with Alex Cox. No big surprise that he who made uh, the really funny spaghetti western comedy um, – Oh shit, I just, oh, straight to hell. If you ever watch it, it's a, it's a espresso western, as they describe it, because <laughs> nobody drinks whiskey, they all drink espresso. And the, the theme song, which in it is, which is totally like a parody of a fistful of dollars or something like that, like, uh, in, in, incorporates the, the original, the theme song back then that Folgers was using for their drip coffee, <laughs> coffee maker. Uh, it's like a scene where everyone is like in the big gunfight at the end. Everyone's got a cup of espresso in their hand. And their hands are like shaking and stuff because they're so <laughs> watered. Uh, it's very funny. But anyway, so he talks about it, you know, basically saying how great this is and how great the director is, uh, which is pretty cool uh, thing to, to get for this since almost everybody else is dead. Uh, there's a short 1968 documentary, Western Italian style, which was about how spaghetti westerns were at that point starting to really take off in America. And there's a booklet uh, with an essay by a film critic that talks about it's uh, basically basically talking about that said political nihilism that's in here within that global political context and also talking about what an incredible douchebag Klaus Kinski is. <laughs> yes, as we all know. I still have not watched that documentary, uh, My Best Fiend. I have not uh, either. That's about his relationship with, uh, um, what's his name, Werner Herzog. Quite frankly, after watching, um, God, that one movie that we did for one of my original Digital Noises, the the, the Creeping Creep or something. <laughs> Uh, ever yeah. since then, I'm like, you know what? I don't know that I need to watch documentaries about horrible Hollywood people. I know that they're just horrible Hollywood people. This dude's people. straight up a lunatic. Like, yeah. he was just crazy. Like, I know we're not allowed to say that anymore, but come on. You look into <laughs> the stuff that he, you're like, no, that dude's just crazy. No one goes, hey, hey, no, come on. It's not fair to call Charles Manson crazy. <laughs> Nobody says crazy. Yeah, no one is going to protest. And when you look at Mikinski, you're like, yeah, that dude is yeah, crazy. Yeah, that dude's yeah. crazy. Um, all right, our next film is a, a recent release, American-Japanese drama film written and directed by Atsuko Hiryanagi, uh, who – I'm trying to remember. There was something else he did. I was like, oh, what was that that I, that I saw? Well, maybe it was mainly just this. Okay, sorry, my mistake. But anyway, uh, that was uh, went to the Cannes Film Festival and performed relatively well. Uh, that had the surprise of actually featuring a major American actor, Josh Hartnett. In yeah, it, who, one it, actually, one of his better roles, I think. But called Oh Lucy, it follows Setsuko, uh, played by Shinobu Terjima, who is uh, a office worker, an office where she's clearly one of the older people in the office. She's not doesn't really have much of a sense of camaraderie with her or even understanding with her other coworkers. No, she's kind of the butt of their jokes. Yeah. Uh, and she has a niece who, um, uh, played by Shioro Kutsuna, who basically says, look, I was taking these English lessons and it's actually really great, but I can't do it. And I wonder if I could like sell it to you because I need the money. And she's like, okay, it's her one connection to her family because her actual sister, uh, uh, Ayako played by uh, Kayo Minami. They are very not friends anymore. Her sister is just a, I hate to use this term now today's age, but it's just a shrill person. Yes. Puts down everyone and everything. But so her one connection is that. And she feels like because her sister, as we discovered, hooked up with a guy she was thought she was intended for, she kind of looks in some ways as the niece, as the daughter she never had. So she went, goes in to take said English lessons and they're being taught in what clearly is a brothel. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Yeah. Uh, run by the, the local Yakuza, uh, uh, 
by Josh Hartnett, who is doing it in a sort of their, he doesn't even, as near as I can tell, he speaks almost no Japanese himself. And he's kind of like, he does a thing where he's all very huggy and touch oriented and <laughs> makes them wear wigs, makes them wear wigs, gives her the English name Lucy. And she ends up really liking it a lot as yeah. like, and clearly is kind of attracted to this guy as well. Well, it turns out she comes back, says, I'm sorry, he left. We have another teacher, if you want, that's taking his place. But he's gone. Finds out that he went to America with her niece, who are having an affair together. Uh, and she decides, I'm I'm going to follow them there. I'm going to go and visit my niece. When the truth is, yeah, she, wants Josh she wants Josh Hartnett. And it, and it ends up with her, her sister going, well, you're not going by yourself. I'm not going to let you do that. I'm going to go with you. With a kind of cute, albeit at points, at points, dark so like, comedy. This kind of movie can be done in two ways. Mm-hmm. Um, one is where the character we're following hits rock bottom and finds kind of a way to live with their life and be okay. Mm-hmm. And the other is where the movie culminates in them hitting rock bottom. Yeah. And it's just about a life falling apart. And unfortunately... This felt more like the latter. Mm-hmm. Like it reminded me of that uh, the new Aubrey Plaza movie that Ingrid Goes West, mm-hmm. which I hate it. Really, I love that movie. I, 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 it's this this type of film. I have a hard time with it. Fair enough. Now, I whereas I hated Ingrid Goes West because it was so just nasty <laughs> and bleak throughout. This one, she was enough of a charismatic person, and she was interesting enough that that the cuteness it. It balanced out really well. I still really wanted to it not to be a movie about this person's life spinning out, mm-hmm. but I, don't know, I got into it. I really enjoyed the characters. I, I think that's it. There's some great performances from from uh, the two primary uh, Japanese actresses here, who both really, despite not speaking English about eighty five percent of the time, um, are giving performances that you that are just like you are those characters they're honest yeah they're very honest performances um i yeah hartnett is doing his best just to be charming for you know which which on the whole works and i do feel like at the end despite yes culminating sort of a character's lowest moment there's a ray of light at there the is. end that is that i would have been i would have it would have changed my whole feeling about this movie if that hadn't been. No, I, I think that's why i like this so much more than i like ingrid goes west is Ingrid Goes West just was that bleak, bleak, bleak. Whereas this, I'm like, okay, you know what? This isn't a person ending their life. This is a person hitting that point and then going like, no, I, I can be more than this. Agreed. Uh, there's a few extra scenes. There's some deleted scenes, interview with the director, uh, com- uh, conducted at the New York Asian Film Festival. That's about it. But um, most little indie films like this don't really have a lot of bonus features anyway. I do think for those who really like indie comedies that, once again, we're not talking the Little Miss Sunshine indie comedies here. No. <laughs> you know, this is not wide release indie comedy stuff. The sort of like black comedy stuff, uh, but with a sort of slightly quirkiness to it. Yeah. You're, I think you're going to really enjoy this. Um, it's not for everybody, but if you if you find that you like the little sort of in-between indie comedies like that, then uh, maybe this is one you want to seek I, out. I'm with that, I agree. So we got to take a look at a South Korean horror film here that I've actually been really interested in seeing. I've been hearing good things about it called The Mimic that just came out last year. Uh, directed by, I don't know how to say this, Hugh Young, I think, uh, who did the low-budget uh, hide-and-seek in 2013, which ended up being a pretty big uh, hit. I've not seen that one either. This particular one, uh, uh, 
Well, you you know what? I keep saying the plots. Why don't you say the plots? <laughs> so, um, this is not Guillermo de Toro's The Mimic. Yeah, yeah, this has nothing to do with giant bugs, although I do enjoy that movie. I do enjoy it, too. Um, so, basically, this follows a husband and wife and their young daughter? Yeah. Daughter? Okay. I suddenly couldn't remember if it was a daughter or son, <laughs> but their young child, as uh, they move into the country and what is a pretty badass house with a dog kennel. Uh, and they're doing the classic American horror trope where they're escaping their problems because they had another child who disappeared yeah, just a couple years of five years prior. And so they're trying to move on and find a new life. Well, just beforehand, uh, a really shitty guy did, did really shitty things and accidentally unleashed this mythical figurine who or figure who starts coming out and terrorizing the people and it's known as the mimic where you hear dead voices or voices of dead people you've known and the idea is is that when you hear the voice you should run yeah because it's coming for you which admittedly sets this movie up to be a lot more gruesome than it is agreed i really went into this thinking that well, one when the movie began, I was like, "Oh yeah, I forgot this is South Korean, and they do fucked up shit better than anyone else." Because my god, that guy is a shit heel in the beginning, right? But I thought it was going to be this movie about this monster terrorizing the mountainside, and it really isn't. It's about this family dealing with their loss as they find this small child who clearly something is going on with her, um, and. The child has the same name as their other daughter and basically ingrains herself into their life and it starts to it starts to affect their marriage and a bunch of weird shit starts to happen too. Yeah, the mom is starting to lose it and sort of have trouble remembering that this daughter is not her own actual child. Yeah, and uh, the husband is surprisingly sensible, though kind of a dick about it. Yeah. He's like a dick a good guy. Well, because, like, she's keeps going, no, 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 we should throw everything away and just go back and insist uh, that the police find our child. And he's like, it's been five years. There's not been a trace. Trust me, he's not alive. Yeah. That kid is dead. And you need to come to terms with this because it's wrecking our marriage and not helping at all is uh, her mom who's living with them who's going through dementia. And the part of the reason they move up there is because they need to get her away from everything and back to – I believe they she, that's where she's originally from. Yeah. I, I, which doesn't I really, part of that connection. Which ties into it only a little bit in, into the story. I think just because like she herself has dead relatives so they can call to her at one point. And there's like a mysterious witch, blind witch woman in the village who warns them about what's going on. And there's a lot of very traditional well, Asian horror elements going on here. But the fact that this is treated more like a psychological drama is really interesting. It is. And so there's also a lot of stuff that's clearly very steeped in South Korean cultural heritage yeah. that I did not get. Like, there's a thing with wrapping the mirrors that yeah. I wasn't sure what they did, and it ends up coming into play later on. Because mirrors are sort of, but, I guess, on some degree, a portal. I guess. I, I never got the why. I was just like, oh, that's the thing, I guess. There's a lot of abstractness in the mythology of this film, which is indeed, from what I read, only loosely based on actual folklore. Well, and, and I have to admit, like, once it got into the meat of it, which since this is an Asian horror film, there is, of course, investigating why these things are happening and the ghost slash demon slash whatever. So, like, when it got into that aspect, I got really enthralled with that plot. I liked the 
the fact that this is folklore from another country and watching how that tale unfolds. And it's like modern day folklore that it's come about in the last hundred years. Yeah. Um, and so that was really cool. And the imagery, they do a good job with that. It's creepy as all heck. Like, I, it's biggest sin is that it's not a movie about a giant folktale monster ravaging the countryside, which is what <laughs> I really expected from the opening. Yeah, there's no giant bugs ravaging the countryside yeah, that can no, look like no. people. Uh, yeah, like, by the way, for the record, if you hadn't seen Guillermo del Toro's Mimic, watch the director's cut. Because yes, the you know, theatrical cut is kind of shitty. The director's cut is pretty damn good. Yeah. Just sure. saying. Um, anyway, yes, uh, I think this is more for the, the type of horror that people who like, say, the new brand of A- A24 type horror films Agreed. might really enjoy. Or somebody actually, I saw somebody on Twitter today call them, we should just call them A24 or. <laughs> well, because, like, it, even the guy from the beginning who, from the beginning, I was like, oh, that dude is way dead. No, he shows up for quite a bit of the Dude, movie afterwards. The weirdest part is like the intro is sort of like the you know the victims of the mimic before that this family even gets there, who clearly is a serial killer and his something wife I, sister. I kind or something, of took it as a double indemnity thing, where like this is some guy and he's been having an affair and he like finally got up the courage and killed his wife. And, yeah, but, but he's this horrible sexist guy too. But in the, but I kept expecting that plot line to be further explained and have more to do with the rest of it and it really doesn't it's no. kind of well, like it, that that plot is why i thought it was this monster movie because yeah. i was like oh so they're all dead and now the mimic is unleashed but once it gets into the whole sequence because it's all like the mimic is is released by them they're trying to hide a body uh, through a bricked up cave or cavern entrance which apparently was bricked up for good reason along yes. with various mystical like <clears throat> and stuff with bells on them to keep said folklore monster at bay um and now that it's released, uh-oh. But there's a whole, you know, third act thing where they've got to go into the caverns and explore yeah. them. And there's, like, mimic shit happening all over the place. <laughs> and lots more stuff with mirrors that isn't entirely clear, but is pretty cool to see. Yeah, like, i, I got to admit, you're right. There's no explanation as to the why. Things just kind of happen, but it's cool stuff. Yeah. So I'm okay with it. Yeah. Uh, it's genuinely creepy. There's some solid performances. Uh, overall, I enjoyed this. I don't think I liked it quite as much as you did. Well, but, it, but I think part of the problem is it does take too long to get to where it's going. It does. And, and the ending isn't great. No. It makes sense if you uh, view it as that A24 kind of movie. Because from an emotional, metaphorical aspect, it's a it's an interesting and complex ending. But for a horror film, it's like, well, I wanted something more. And I will say, though, that <laughs> I, I've i been watching Supernatural, and I spent the entire movie going like, oh, so Sam and Dean are going to show up like in a week, right? It does feel like a story they would... This is clearly <laughs> the setup. Yeah. Um, for the, the extra features, as brief as they are, there's a making of, which has something labeled as director's commentary that is not a commentary at all. I don't know why it's called that. It's a, a minute 47 EPK, uh, that talks about the sound design, which is one <laughs> of the, which is one of the most notable things of the film, actually. Cause with yeah. like that, the idea of these voices, I mean, they have it set up that if you have surround, <coughs> which I do not in my house currently, uh, apparently it's pretty fucking cool. The way okay. it uses the voices in it. By the way, we didn't even talk about this in the reviews, but the uh, the Incredibles two does some super neat stuff with sound design in it. Really? So definitely see it in a theater or someplace with surround because some of the, the the they do some super cool stuff. One of Jack Jack's abilities is to basically turn into like Carol Ann from Poltergeist and like go into like the the space between and like <laughs> they do a thing where it's like he's just coming, his voice is coming out of various speakers, just single speakers around the theater. It's like wow, that was really cool. Anyway, sorry, sorry, sorry. That's the Incredibles. 
albums too, which you should totally see. And then there's a slightly longer EPK on here called the actors, which is, takes a look at the performers and then just the trailer. But, uh, yeah, that, that's, you know, pretty much this for, for, I think people who really, like I said, people who like the artier horror, I think might really enjoy this. Although I, I think it's hardly a masterpiece. It's interesting. It's, it's enjoyable. It's enjoyable. I, I think if you like artier horror, you like it. I got into it because I've been on a big fairy tale and folklore kick. So like, that's what appealed to me. So like, if you have those leanings, check it out. Otherwise it's, it's another South Korean kind of twisted, interesting drama. So uh, I might talk about this in the future with Matt Frank, this next one. Um, I, it's one of those, like, they originally sent it to me and it was incomplete. And I was like, hey, did you mean to not send me the whole collection of this, uh, of Era's The Bloodthirsty Trilogy? They're like, fuck, okay, uh, we're having problems. We'll get it to you. And they did. And they actually, they normally just send me the white disc. Well, they flat out sent me the whole real Ooh. proper set for this one, which I was super happy to get. Um, the reason Matt Frank was interested, despite this having nothing to do with giant monsters, it is an oddity in film history in that Toho Films, which is largely known, of course, best known for their Godzilla and giant kaiju films, decided they were going to do a trilogy of vampire films modeled after the Hammer horror films. Uh, and they are. They totally, you watch these, you're like, Jesus Christ, these, if this wasn't entirely in Japanese, this could, these, all three of these could easily be Hammer horror movies. It's one of those, I bet you 90% of the people who love Hammer horror have never even heard of these films. And that's a shame because all three of these are indeed, yeah, well, they're pretty fun. Uh, the first one is The Vampire Doll. The second one is Lake of Dracula. And the third <laughs> one is Evil of Dracula. All right. I want to see these just based on those titles. <laughs> all, all three of which get... Like, the first one is is considered of the three to be the more classic, and I suspect that's because of the lens in which it's been viewed by uh, critics who traditionally, historically, have not been as much into campy genre stuff, nice. but because it's the most serious, straight-laced, even kind of arty of the three, but it's also by far the most dull of the three. Uh, I, as someone who really loves campy genre stuff, I can tell you the second two are a lot more fun. Um, but, you know... Well, it's called Lake of Dracula. Yeah, How could it, it not be Dracula fun? has a lake, you know? It's like, why not? I've had everything else. I might as well have a lake. Um... It's the, like the first one is almost more of a sort of like uh, ghost story in a way, which is more typical of Japanese cinema. Like Japanese cinema really embraced like the whole ghost story, even where the ghosts have vampiric qualities, but they're definitely more of a ghost, you know, and there's always the love story, like the female ghost who has the falls for the, the unwary yeah. traveler that was supposed to be a victim, but then they're like, but they're good and I love them and I don't want to kill them. <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, Sorry, but, I have never seen any movies in this genre. Oh, okay. So I'm just like, oh, yeah, that. Uh, I know what you're talking about. But this one has more, the first one is more in relation with the old Dark House, uh, the Boris Karloff role, um, Boris Karloff movie. Uh, and it's a character we see that, like, a guy is coming to meet his widow and her family and finds out she's died two weeks previously. He doesn't want to believe it, uh, even when he's shown the, the, uh, the, the shrine, uh, and then he starts hearing her crying in the house, and he he thinks he sees her, and of course, she's kind of alive. Uh, and, you know, that goes from there. There's a lot of... It's not scary. It's just... Is she a huh? vampire? <laughs> yeah, right? Um, and the answer is yes, somewhat. Whereas you get into Lake of Dracula and Evil Dracula, okay, this is flat out a hammer horror film, uh, vampire type film, which, uh, like... Lake of Dracula is starts with a little kid having a memory of like 
encountering a vamp, a very Christopher Lee-ish type Dracula, uh, and then flash to years later, and she still has weird nightmares about that recurring dream to the point where she keeps painting this big yellow eye that she remembers seeing. Uh, and uh, she, she ends up, of course, basically a bunch of people are disappearing near this lake, and it's because that vampire is real, and he's turning other people into vampires, and other people go missing and turn into vampires, and then she encounters them all, and the vampire's like, it's you, you're the one that should be with me forever, my true love, and she's like, no, and you know how that story goes. So, are they related to each other, the three movies, no, they are or not, are they standalone? not connected at all. Okay. And then Evil of Dracula is a teacher who goes, is brought into a new school, male teacher, who is, uh, discovers that the previous headmaster, he's being brought in to replace him, and is in fact staying with him at first uh, is in fact a very Bram Stoker's Dracula type Dracula. You know, he's like, come into my house. Let me introduce you. <laughs> um, and the headmaster is going around and basically killing the hottest chicks at the school, uh, like turning them into vampires. And this is definitely the like the latter day hammer one. This is the one. There's lots of tits. There's lots of blood. It, it gets super silly and in the most fun way. Okay. This is a, this is a fun little collection of movies for people who like the Hammer type films. Not the lie, you've sold me on them. Yeah, there, there's a, a a lot here to like, including extra features with um, uh, some background on Japanese horror in general in this trilogy in particular for 16 minutes uh, by uh, critic Kim Newman. Or, I'm sorry, writer King Kim Newman, who I believe wrote the book Anno Dracula. Uh, and he talks about how this is so weird because first there's, like I said, those ghost films where, which dominated Japanese horror that had tiny bits of vampirism in there, but not really, not by any recognizable European sense, despite the fact that the Dracula movies actually performed incredibly well in Japan. It just didn't, nobody thought of making movies there like that, except for this tiny brief trilogy. And then almost immediately after this, it went back away from it again, and we ended up getting into the Ringu period. I was say, the, only other, the only vampires in Japanese cinema I really remember are like, I want to say the Leaping Vampires, but is that Chinese That's Chinese. Cinema? That's Chinese. Oh, so, yeah, I very, bet. very different. Uh, yeah, most vampires in Japanese cinema, like I said, were more I ghosts I guess you're right. There vampires. really aren't any Japanese vampires yep. that I can think of. Um, and it's interesting, yeah, like like the Ringu phenomenon, the little girl with long black hair and a white dress period <laughs> of horror. I don't know why there's no single name for that. I just think of the, the Ringu monster. Um, so dominated and was so incredibly popular that nobody really ever looked back. Yeah. You know? Um, so, yeah, that's really the only bonus other than original trailers and stills galleries, although there's a really nice big uh, booklet in here that, that has quite a few interesting factoids about this period. Very, I, I would advise anyone to explore this who loves 70s horror. It's, it's super interesting. Our last film, speaking of horror, is a modern horror, which is a long, strangely, I, get, I don't know, overdue? Ten years later? You know, uh, s- s- like film, sequel? Not uh, really I'll sequel? I'm here with you because... I despise the first Strangers. I, I, I really enjoyed the first and, Strangers. I don't usually like that kind of thing. All right, so I, all right, yeah. here's all I'll say about it. 2008 uh, is when yeah. the first one came out. In the opening credits, they tell you flat out that there are no survivors. Why am I watching the movie at that <laughs> point? Like, I, I want the movie to be about someone for a reason. Right. 
And so when that happened, I was just like, yeah, I'm, I'm already done. I already lost interest. Well, why, why do I care about these people at all? So I was really nervous going into this one. It actually called the strangers pray at night. Notice not called the strangers too, because this is really a sequel so much as it is one taking a very similar idea and making a totally different movie. It's almost like you had a group of guys or a group of teenagers who saw that happen in the news and then decided to do it themselves. Agreed. Like, aside from the fact that they're wearing, I'm pretty sure, the same masks, there's no touch. Uh, in, in this particular case, getting the director of 48 Meters Down, or 47 Meters Down, well, the upcoming 48 Meters Down, but the 47 Meters really? Down, which I actually thought was one of those movies that was like, like it was bad, but it was good bad. I had a really good time watching it. Um, uh, uh, Johans Roberts to step in and do this with an interesting cast, Christina Hendricks, Martin Henderson, Bailey Madison. Um, and uh, it's written by the guy who wrote the first film. Although this movie is clearly unlike the first film, which was a, was a pretty straight up remake of the French version, which came first. This movie is more of an homage to the slashers of the 80s, but not just the American ones. There's a lot of stuff in here that owes a lot to, like, Dario Argento's Giallo. So much so that it took me an hour into the movie to realize it wasn't in the 80s. Right. Like, it wasn't until you saw Smash Cell Phones that I was like, oh... Oh, it's not in the because they're driving around right. listening to eighties pop. Well, so but like, the, oh. that's pretty typical today's today yeah. anyway. Apparently, <laughs> so like if people are still, they're not giving up. I'm holding on. I'm clinging on to my <laughs> Journey Escape album and the accompanying video game. Um, here's the thing: I don't think this is a great movie. I think it's an average movie with some amazing moments in it. Agreed. It, it has a lot of problems. I'm I'm particularly bothered by the fact that. Well, yes, I know in horror movies there's a certain amount of we you don't know what you're going to do in that situation, and so you always think of the idea that the victims don't. Yeah. But these, there were a couple of moments where it felt like the characters, particularly one, just went, you know what? I guess I'm going to go ahead and be murdered. Yeah, I agree. It was just like, but just just do something. I mean, I feel like there's moments like that that are like, well, that's because this is supposed to be an homage to those movies that did that stupid shit all the time. Like, well, I'm not going to make sure they're dead. I'm just going to walk away. Yeah. They're unconscious. That's good enough. Like the masked killer is like, what are you, an idiot? And like, the thing is you can't even do an homage of that unless it's overtly funny. Yeah. Now, because I remember there's a scene like that in here. I was like, come on. I get that it's a tribute, but it's also not a comedy. This just went over the top. Yeah. Um, But, like, there were a couple... There's a moment when... Oh, I can't even go into it because I'm spoiling. But one of the first big moments that happens, it actually... It took me about a minute and a half to realize that that was real. (laughs) Because in so many other movies, we would watch that and then, nope, it's a ploy and the bad guy just tricked you. Right. I was like, oh shit, that that actually just happened. Wow, good movie. Good for you. I mean, I feel like there's, like the first 40 minutes or so of this are terrible. Nothing fucking is happening. And it's one of those like, okay, well, you got to get to know the family that are about to all get killed, right? No, I know they're all about to get killed. And in fact, you take the only person I originally was interested to see this film in and killed them right off the bat. Uh, 
I'm like, okay, this is really by the numbers. There's nothing interesting going on here at all. All these characters are flat, and, and there's there's nothing to, for me to grab onto. It's not till the film actually starts to in, inject some of that style into itself in the second half that I started to get into it. There's a whole sequence by a swimming pool that is solid, one yeah. of the best horror sequences I've seen this year. Agreed. So that was really cool. Yeah. Uh, but... And there's other moments, too, that I'm like, wow, that was really neat. There's a sequence with a flaming truck that was just like, wow, that's – it's implausible, but it's such a great it's image. It's a great visual. Yeah. Uh, that I'm like, that's super cool. But I think part of the problem is this movie doesn't know exactly what it wants to be. Well, I, I lay it at the faults of – sort of at the fault of the original in that it felt like they were stuck between two worlds. They wanted to go into this goofier, more interesting <clears throat> genre area – but they kept being hampered by that there are no survivors reality of, which is not to say that this movie is very twisty, but like they couldn't decide to go camp, basically. Yeah. It felt and, like, it, although I will say, I didn't mind the first 40 minutes as much as you did. I just like it so I, dull. I will say that I agree with you that the character that I was most interested in is the first one to go, and I was yeah. like, well, damn it. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, I... I was genuinely kind of intrigued as to find out what stupid shit the obligatory uh, troubled teen was getting into. And I kind of got into the plot a bit. And I I thought it was interesting watching horror parents not be giant gaping assholes, but actually sit and try to figure out familial issues. Right. (laughs) Which, yes, granted, I have a very specific audience for that. But, like, I I overall liked it. Uh, Okay. Like, I thought the kills were interesting. I will agree, it gets really good when the characters actually start trying to do something. Yeah. Which, you you just don't see enough in horror. Like, that's when it gets interesting, is when the characters we care about, whether or not they succeed, are just like, no, I'm going to do something about this and make a choice. Agreed. And that's when I got into it. Uh, So... Uh, like I said, if you like these home invasion films, in this case, more of a sort of uh, cabin ground invasion oh, film. Actually, which I loved the location of this. Oh, yeah. It was a great... I thought it was a great idea. Well, because it also has the feeling... It's not a summer camp, but it has the feel of kind of a summer camp type well, location. And it lets you have both wide open settings yeah. and incredibly claustrophobic settings yeah. and gives a plausible reason why nobody is there. Yeah. Um, so if you like this... There's a alternate ending, which is barely alternate. Which, you? by the way, is, I think, shit. Yeah. Like, it's, it's, I, I hated it. It's so little difference, such a little difference, but it, it really... And the one difference is a bad yeah. difference. The one thing, there's a uh, look at the strangers, which is like less than two minute micro plot recap, basically. Uh, there's two minutes, which is another plot recap that's basically the exact same EPK, believe it or not. Uh, there's a thing, a... Sl- under three minute thing at the music of it, which is okay. Um, but the most interesting thing on here actually is the director's cut of a music video for film uh, for this prep for night. And it's actually the story of the killers prepping to go out and do the murders. So the whole thing is following silently all the killers as they're sort of gathering together, ready to head out and seeing them in their homes. And like one of them has just murdered someone inside their, or one of their family members inside their own home. And it's like, wow, this is a really grotesque little, like a, like thing. I actually in some ways enjoyed it more than the film itself. (laughs) Uh, But anyway, that's it for this week's digital noise. I want to thanks to big thanks to Aaron. Wish him luck. He's going out to try and uh, make a new job thing happen. Yeah. Going out to where California. 
Yeah, yeah, Santa Barbara, California. Right. I'm going to so be any, doing training for two a, weeks. Any of your fans are live out in Santa Barbara and you want to hook up with a with a one of us superstar? Maybe you should. Uh, we'll, we'll, yeah, maybe you should send a message to, to Aaron there. Uh, uh, you can reach me on Twitter. I'm at Father Baldor. <laughs> Father Baldor. Father Baldor. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's Baldor, like a door that has like right by your it, balls. It's, it's so that means <laughs> ass, right? Is it Father Ass? Well, see now I have to spell it. It's B A L D O R. Uh, it's it's yeah. so it's bald or yeah not baldor yeah it's it's baldor because you could see how someone it, might it, think you're saying you're the father of ass think of it like <laughs> I'm not going to fine yes you know what fine Chris I am the father of ass <laughs> he hates me now he's like I'm not doing these anymore <laughs> hopefully we'll get him back sooner than later that's for sure because I love recording these things with Aaron you're the best uh, uh, and once again please become a subscriber. Please drink Oscar Blues uh, because they're delicious and they help us out. Amen.